Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, as always, Adam Lowther. And today we have with us Bob Peters, Senior Fellow at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies and a longtime deterrence guru, many years at OSD and at NDU and at DITRA. And so today, Bob, welcome in, as always. Thanks, Thanks for being here. Now, we've, we've you know, we're... If we think back to the, you know, the 2000s up through the last year or so, it was uh, somewhat of a quiet time for we, the deterrence folks. We were discussing topics of, well, how relevant are nuclear weapons and do they still matter and how many should we have? And now we're addressing issues of should we take that threat to use nuclear weapons against us seriously? So it's a it's a, a much more exciting time for the nuclear enterprise. Yes, it is. It is. In some ways, we're, we're back in business. We are back in business, for better or for worse. You know, I, I actually think for better because a world without great power wars, is a, it's actually a much safer world. And, and I don't know if I've told you my theory. So I have a theory that I would like to to share with you and the audience. I submit, I humbly submit that nuclear weapons are the largest single reason for global climate change because Historically, about 1% to 2% of the world's population died every year in conflict. So if you look back to World War I and World War II, uh, that was, you know, 100 plus million people. Now, if you think about all of the people who emit, you know, on average, a certain amount of carbon each year, if we were killing more people in great power wars, we could reduce mankind's global carbon footprint. And because nuclear weapons have stopped us from killing 2% of the world's population each year, we are emitting more carbon and therefore global warming, global climate change, whichever you prefer, is worse than it would have otherwise been because not enough people are dying in conflict. What so say you on my theory? Yeah. So, so in all seriousness, I mean, there's something to that, right? I mean, you can, if you look at de deaths in conflict, going back to, take your pick, 1500, and then map it out over time, what you see is, you know, World War One and World War Two, a steady increase in, in absolute numbers, but you also see a real increase in percentage of the world's population, which is, which is you know, World War Two, God knows, 80 million people died, right? It was horrific. 
after 1945, with the end of World War II, and the and and you know which which culminated with the, with the dropping of the bomb, you've seen on average about one million people die in conflict per year since 1945. So compare that with World War II, one million people. Now, that's one million too many, yes. But then when you compare that number with um, as a percentage of the world's population, the the number of people who die in conflict as a percentage of the world's population has absolutely plummeted since the advent of nuclear weapons. And so I'm always hesitant. I mean, I too would like to live in a world where the lion lies down with the lamb and and mankind can can lay down their arms and, and live in peace and brotherhood. But until that point, I'm hesitant to abolish nuclear weapons because we have 6,000 years of recorded history of what conflict was like without nuclear weapons. And it was horrific. You know, it was massive numbers of combatants dying, but also huge numbers of non-combatants dying. And I'm not sure that, you know, we want to trade what's now almost 80 years of data of a world with nuclear weapons and trade that for a world without nuclear weapons. I mean, I, I would just be very hesitant to do that simply because I don't want to return to an era of great power warfare because we know what that looks like. And it's awful. Unless you truly care about global climate change. And then you yes. definitely want, because not only have, well, the, you know, so it's a, it's a catch 22 because without great power wars, destroying wealth, the world has become more prosperous. And as countries become more prosperous, uh, population growth rates plummet. And you're seeing this right. across, you know, you're seeing this across the developed and developing world. I mean, we're at, we're not at a replacement rate. And so that, of right. course, you know, we've seen global population go up over time, which in part that's because there were 79 million additional people on the planet to have children because mm -hmm. they didn't die in a World War III or whatever other war. But then at the same right. time, because they're becoming prosperous, they're also having fewer kids. So I'm not exactly sure how much we should be blaming on nuclear weapons for additional carbon footprint, but I'm pretty sure it's a lot. It's a, it's a great question. Hey, that's a topic for another podcast, Adam. <laughs> so, but you know, this sort of leads into what we were actually going to talk about, which is the future of arms control. And then if we have time, the future of integrated deterrence, which is our new concept. It's the latest concept we have on deterrence. And of course, with Vladimir Putin, suspending Russian participation in New START. And then he said that a, a day later that he was going to enhance the nuclear program or the nuclear arsenal of Russia, which we're not 100% sure exactly what that means. But that begs the question of what is the future of arms control? And so I toss that over to you. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's it's really... It's a huge question. So if you so if you think back to arms control and, and leave aside the non-proliferation treaty, but you think of arms control itself, it has its origins in the Nixon administration with SALT, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. And the follow-ons of that were the Reagan era Stark treaties and then the Bush era um, uh, Treaty of Moscow and, and then New START under Obama. And you have to go back to the Lyndon Johnson administration, which was well before you and I were born, Adam, to live in a world without nuclear weapons, uh, without, live in a world without nuclear arms control treaties. 
So um, when you think about, you know, with with Putin's declaration of the suspension of of New Start and and his announced expansion of 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 their program, um, what are the prospects for you know the treaty after New Start? And if you go back to the New Start treaty itself, there was always an intention to immediately after ratification to begin negotiation on a follow-on treaty. And um, if you look at the terms of reference, it said um, that any follow-on treaty to New START would have to take into account non-strategic nuclear weapons. Well, after New START was ratified, the Russians said, yeah, no, we're good. We don't need a follow-on treaty to New START. We're good. Um, so, so, so what would a treaty after New START have to take into account? I think from an American perspective, it would have to take into account the Russian non-strategic nuclear weapon arsenal, which is huge. It far strips the American arsenal um, because that's where the real disparity lies. Um, the Russians, I don't think, have any interest whatsoever in talking with us about that, of putting that on the table. Um, unless we have to give up the farm, like the precision guided munitions that we have, our ability to conduct um, meaningful operations around the globe, power projection cap capabilities, space, cyber, God knows what, what they would ask for in exchange for them making meaningful cuts to their NSNW arsenal. And so why would we give that up? Like that, It doesn't make any sense. And even if we did, why would we believe that they would adhere to that treaty after their repeated violations and things such as INF and you know, open skies and you name it? And so I, I don't think that there's any prospect for a treaty after New START with the Russians um, that any administration can pursue. And, and, and even if they did, Republican or, or Democrat, you know, uh, to ratify that treaty, you'd have to find 67 senators to ratify that sucker. And I don't see that as in the cards. I, I think it'd be dumb if we did it with, with the Putin regime. And I think um, it would be impossible to ratify. So it's for me, nuclear arms control for the time being is a dead letter until things fundamentally change in the security environment. You make a good point. And you, you mentioned the nation's precision guided munitions, which I would submit and uh, some of my colleagues at NSRI, uh, Chris Yaw and Dave Rabine and John Swiegel have written an article or they've actually written a couple of articles that address this question of the Russian fear of U.S. PGMs and because particularly American air power and you take fifth gen fighters, which have a, you know, a radar cross section that's almost zero. And then you yeah. put PGMs on them and then you fly them from NATO bases in Eastern Europe and then you start attacking Russian targets, the Russians, they don't have an effective fifth generation force and they're, they're not going to have one. They might have a handful yeah. of fighters, but they won't have a force. And we don't even know how good their fighters are. And then they don't, the Russians have never built. And this is something we've in previous episodes with uh, Rebecca Koffler, we've talked about the Russians. They don't go for accuracy. They go for mass. And so, they and they accept a lot of, you know, collateral damage and civilian casualties. That's just the way they fight. And so, therefore, they fear our conventional capabilities as much, if not more, because of they're usable. 
right? You can much more easily yeah. justify the use of conventional capabilities. And so they're more fearful because they see them as actually destabilizing. So my question right, to you right. is how, for if you're a, a nuclear disarmament advocate and your argument is we need to, to enter arms reduction treaties because we'll replace nuclear capabilities with conventional capabilities that can kill the same targets and, you know, replace nuclear weapons. How do you get these folks to understand that those are what the Russians actually really, really fear? And you're not going to get them to negotiate their only counter to those PGMs, which is the theater nuclear weapons. How do you make that argument? It's hard. You know, like the Russians see it as a trap. You know, as you as you alluded to, the the American proposal is to say let's get rid of let's get rid of let's let's reduce the number of strategic nuclear weapons and let's get rid of these these nasty uh, theater tactical nuclear weapons and we'll just rely on conventional munitions. The Russians see that as a trap. Well, sure, you Americans want to do that because you dominate the battle space literally through those PGMs and, and we have no counter. So that I mean that's a trap for us. And that's their perspective. And so how do you explain that to those in the arms control community? Some are willing to appreciate that. But for them, I think they fall back on, yeah, I get that. But the consequences of of an uncontrollable escalating nuclear war are so horrific. We we have to get rid of these things. Okay, but you're not going to convince the other side to go down that route because they see it as being a trap. And so how do you convince those who, who, you know, arms control is their profession. Like let's be honest, there is a cadre of folk out there for whom arms control is their lifelong profession. And, um, and, and, you know, they're good people and their hearts are in the right places, but I don't know that they've got the background to really understand um, what, it means to unleash, um, you know, a, a JASM ER with an exquisitely precise uh, warhead package that can take out one half of the building and the other half of the building, you're fine. Um, and what that means if you're an adversary who's trying to defend against those systems um, when you have no counter and no way to disrupt the American force flow into theater absent nuclear weapons. It, it's a tall order. And I think that's a lot of times why the communities talk past one another. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And I think one of the things you're, and this is an equally daunting task, and that is how do you convince the arms control community that a low yield theater nuclear weapon is not the same thing as a strategic nuclear weapon and that the use of a, single or small number of nuclear weapons, first of all, it doesn't cause Armageddon, nor does it inherently lead to, you know, escalation to Armageddon. And so therefore yeah. it's perfectly plausible for the Russians to see their low yield theater nuclear capabilities as effective battlefield counters to our conventional PGMs. How do, how do you make that argument? You know, I was in a meeting once and um, 
there was, you know, we were using a scenario in which somebody used like a, a small weapon, right? Like 10 kiloton weapon. And um, somebody said, you know, they, they've just unleashed a weapon that can destroy a city. And, and, and some of the folks were like, hold on, this isn't like 500 kilotons. It's not like taking out midtown Manhattan. We're talking about relatively, you know, confined effects um, that are devastating within that area. But beyond that, like things are pretty much okay. And the person could not understand. And, and, so, and, and at one point somebody said to this person, so you think a, a nuke is just a nuke? He said, yeah, a nuke is just a nuke. And so they see it as this incredible, some of them, not all, but um, I, I think a lot of folk out there, when they think of a nuclear weapon, they, they think of this kind of 1983 view in which a single nuclear weapon goes off and, you know, the tri-state area disappears. And it's hard to combat that view that's so ingrained in their minds. Now, I, I think you're spot on in that, one of the most underexplored areas that's out there is what does conflict termination look like if you find yourself in the midst of a limited theater-constrained nuclear war? Because I think that the, the, the things that inhibit central nuclear war in which two adversaries are unloading on one another are so great that you could see multiple exchanges of relatively low yield nuclear weapons between two adversaries confined to a theater of operations that could go on for a period of weeks. And now how does that war end? I think that's a tremendously underexplored area. And I think that those in the defense community really need to tackle that one head on because, um, you know, I think it's a distinct possibility that we've simply underexamined for the last I don't know, three decades. And it's huge. The implications are huge. They are. And as soon as we take a quick break, we'll discuss that further. We'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwa Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. for joining us and we're talking to bob peters and we're talking about the future of arms control we're talking about nuclear war fighting uh we even tested one of my theories have i ever well I've, i'll tell you that theory another time I've, it's a it's a great theory about the role of bacon in the world uh so we'll, we'll save that for another day but uh, awesome. one of the things that as we think about the future of arms control and I, I think you brought up a really good point, and that is, is that we have a whole cadre of folks, in, you know, in D.C. and in even in the weapons labs and elsewhere, that they they exist for arms control sake, and absent arms control, they don't exist, and so therefore there is this necessary impetus 
to always be engaged in arms control. Now, as I think about arms control, and I've, I've given it a lot of thought uh, because I'm a, by and large, I'm a pragmatist. If I could come up with a weapon that caused the same fear and the same restraint as a nuclear weapon, rods from God, lasers, I mean, you name it. I'd, I would gladly give up. I don't really particularly care about the explosive effects of nuclear weapons in and of themselves. I just care about the effect they achieve, particularly in the mind of an adversary. So I'm pragmatic. And so I'm pragmatic about nuclear arms control as well. And if it actually did something good for us, then I'd be for it. Uh, and if it doesn't do something for us, then I, I'm opposed to it. And so the best I can tell, and you tell me if I'm missing something here, is that arms control's primary utility, first of all, I think generally the weaker side benefits from it. They're the ones who gain the most out of arms controls, whoever's weaker. And then I would generally say that arms control has utility in helping two adversaries who are probably, they have different, usually have different systems of government, very different cultures, different languages. And there's a lot of, oftentimes, a lot of sort of mirror imaging of one another that maybe arms control can help them understand each other a little better. And beyond those those things, I, I'm not sure that I really see the utility of arms control. Right. So, so I, I agree with you that arms control can be an important tool for strategic stability. You know, making sure that neither side has an incentive to, um, to launch for strike against one another for if you're in a period of acute crisis, whether it's diplomatic or what have you, that things don't go over the edge to conflict, right? And so that one side fears, well, if the other side goes first, uh, then then we're in really bad shape from which we can't recover. Therefore, we feel compelled to strike first. Arms control can be useful in, in, in shoring up strategic stability, but it's not an end state itself. And I don't even think getting to a world without nuclear weapons is, is an admirable end state in and of itself. Um, it, arms control can be a good tool. Um, you know, in my mind, who, like, if I were to design an ambassador to go negotiate an arms control treaty, and, and I agreed, everything you said is that, you know, humans are cognitive misers, and so they mirror image. They think that the other side either has nefarious intentions or they believe that, um, you know, they don't understand how the other side views the world differently. They're, they have a difficult time putting themselves in the other shoes. All those things are true. But if I'm trying to design the world's greatest arms controller, I'm not, I'm not necessarily you know, make an ambassador out of an international law professor um, with a really good heart. You know, what I want to find is a ballistic missile submarine captain who really understands targeting, who really understands reentry, who really understands um, redundancy, who really understands the role and function that these weapons play um, as part of our broader national security strategy as a deterrent and their warfighting implications. Um, and that person with their depth of knowledge knows what's acceptable to make cuts or knows what's acceptable, uh, to, to, you know, go up or whatever, because my concern is if you've got, you know, 
well-intentioned people without backgrounds in this stuff, what you get is the Washington Naval Treaty <laughs> of the 1920s. And that was, a, of course, the notorious treaty that set caps on um, naval vessel production. And what it did was it 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 was an incredibly unfair treaty that um, that that the people who had good intentions adhered to by and large by putting caps on the on the gross tonnage of of vessels that could be put to sea as part of a nation's um, navy. Um, but then those other countries that were maybe not so well intentioned found loopholes, or that treaty allowed them to build up higher than where they were. And so it was this uh, ludicrously gross um, but well-intentioned treaty that set the stage for this disparity in capabilities in the Pacific that led up to World War II. I mean, to me, that's like, you know, it's it's one of the worst treaties ever designed was the Washington Naval Treaty. And, and that's what I fear if you had some well-intentioned people who think arms control is inherently a good thing, not a tool, but it's an inherently good thing. We just need to get to the negotiating table. And the more parties that are part of that treaty, the better. So you could end up with this treaty that, as you point out, benefits the weak and may actually give them headroom to expand their arsenal while causing cuts in the American arsenal. Um, and what you get is this horrific outcome that's unintended, but because it was negotiated by non-experts, that's where you end up 15 years down the line. That's that's kind of like my worst case doomsday scenario for nuclear arms control is we get the Washington Naval Treaty 2.0, but with nukes. Yeah, it's... You know, it's funny you mention this because uh, myself, Christine Leah, and Curtis McGiffin had an article that came out today in Real Clear Defense uh, that talks about America's hopium habit. And, yeah. and uh, you know, we, we talked about this idea that, you know, hopium is a drug that is often widely used in the White House. And it's turned, you know, unfortunately most of the past five administrations have been turned into hopium dens because they can't get off of this idealistic drug that makes them, uh, you know, it's, it's primary side effect is that you can't distinguish reality from your idealism. And, you know, if you take the current situation, so the Russians have suspended control, their participation in new start. The United States is funding a conflict that would that would put NATO troops eventually because the Ukraine would, because of this war, eventually move into NATO and the EU. I think that's a, an inevitability if the Russians were to lose. So the Russians know that their three largest cities, both in the north and the south, will, will all have NATO troops within a day's drive or less. And NATO troops could easily finish up that short jaunt across the the Great Russian Plain. And so therefore, oh, and by the way, we're going to, we, you know, we have the Assistant Secretary of State talking about uh, the war crimes tribunal to come that is going to put, you know, Vladimir Putin, you know, and take him to The Hague and put him in prison. Uh and but at the same time we're ready to negotiate to come back to the to the table to negotiate. Now I'm not sure how high on hopium you have to be to think that Vladimir Putin is going to both stand in you know in the defendant's chair while negotiating 
uh, arms control treaties with you while, while your forces are on his border and, you know, you know, days, you know, hours away from his great Southern city. But I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. And so it's, it's just, it's almost a total, I don't know whether it's historical ignorance or cultural ignorance or ignorance of geography or just hopium's, you know, that good. I'm not really sure what's causing that sort of thinking to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, to be fair, I mean, he could be tried in Geneva where you was actually a great place to do arms control treaties at the same time. So it is possible <laughs> for him to sit across the table in an orange jumpsuit, but, but so I'll, so I'll take a slightly different view. So sure. like, I'm not worried about NATO troops fighting in Ukraine. Like I, I don't think we're that dumb. Like, don't get me wrong. Like Americans do dumb stuff all the time, but I don't think we're quite that dumb, no, but we are being included. I just mean that we're our support for the Ukraine with weapons and funding and things of that sort. If Ukraine were to win yep. and Russia were to be expelled, I would fully expect that Ukraine would a- apply for NATO member status and EU member membership. Yeah. And that, you know, NATO would continue to expand to Russia's border. That's sort of the point I was trying to get, but go ahead. You've- yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I certainly don't want to give Russian trolls more talking points. Like, I don't think like NATO's never been interested in invading Russia, right? Like that. I mean, there's, if, if you go back to the beginning of the formation of NATO, it's always been like, dear Lord, we don't want to go fight in there. We don't want to invade Russia. Like everyone who's tried that has failed. Like it's just, it, it's the world's largest swamp. There's no way we want to do that. Um, but that said, you know, when you think about the war in Ukraine, and, and again, like I am all for degrading Russian capabilities. I'm all for, you know, punching Putin in the teeth and not letting him reap benefit. And frankly, the Russian military has for it has performed embarrassingly poorly. I mean, it is shocking. They suck at combined arms. They simply do not know how to do combined arms. They've been building this vaunted military. They're 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 apparently terrible at it. Um, you know, they've lost an enormous amount of capability. So from an American perspective, it's good job, Ukraine. Like you've really degraded Russian capabilities. You've killed a ton of tanks, killed a bunch of artillery. You know, you've broken their back with their NCO core, which didn't look that good to begin with. But, you know, good job, fellas. And, and you know, there is something that tugs at your heartstrings for the plucky Ukrainians. But at the same time, I don't see how like Putin loses this war and holds on to his power without using nuclear weapons beforehand. And so there's a part of me that's, that's like, you know, if you just think very coldly, you know, what are our interests? We want a weekend Russia that does not feel emboldened to roll across the border into Poland or, you know, Estonia or Latvia or UPEC. I think we've achieved that. I think we've so degraded Russian capabilities. We've shown that the Russian air defenses are not as badass as we feared for 10 plus years that, yeah, they've, they've got some capability there, but, you know, they're not invulnerable. We know how to roll them back. Um, the Russians are not going to be able to roll into NATO anytime in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and and moreover, given how energized the Germans and the Poles and the French and the Brits are, 
um, and, and our other NATO allies, like I feel pretty good that they can cover down on deterring Russian aggression um, from rolling across the border conventionally into NATO soil. So that's good, which then frees us up to really focus on on the Indo-Pacific. But I don't want to just, you know, force Putin into a point where he says, well, you know what, uh, I'm going to I'm going to try to, you know, um, get victory out of the jaws of defeat. And I'm going to pop off 20 low yield nuclear weapons and that'll break the back of the Ukrainians. I don't want that to happen either. And so I don't know how this war ends, but this this idea that we're going to deal a crushing, humiliating blow to Putin um, when he's already been humiliated at this point, I would offer. Um, and somehow we're going to win and the Ukrainians are going to win and Putin's not going to use nuclear weapons. Um, that's a pretty big jump for me. And so I'm, I'm kind of at the point of, it's not that I want the Ukrainians to lose, but, you know, w- let's start throttling back so that we don't force, we, we don't unintentionally uh, convince Putin to escalate to a point that we don't want him to go to. That's just my concern. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. So I'm going to ask one final question. Is there any circumstance in which you see arms control as viable in the next year to five years? Um, yes. And I'm going to caveat what I'm going to say, um, in that I'm not advocating for external regime change, but there has to be regime change in Moscow. And I don't mean Putin 2.0. I don't mean like replace Khrushchev with Brezhnev. I don't mean that. But what I mean is a change of regime that is no longer this authoritarian despotism, um, that is anti-Western and paranoid and so forth. But you have kind of like a Yeltsin 2.0 figure that is interested in moving away from the past and trying to embrace the West and trying to integrate it has to be a fundamental change. Even if Putin is suicided next week and somebody else comes in his stead and he's just 2.0, but this time better, um, that's not a person with whom we can engage in arms control. And, it, and so I don't see arms control happening until there is a fundamental regime change in Moscow. Not that I'm advocating that we do, you know, an Iraq style, you know, regime change in, in Russia. I'm not advocating that. I just don't see it as in the cards um, with Russia and the Chinese have been unambiguous in their um, rejection of any overtures that we've given to them on arms control. They have no interest. And, and, you know, I understand why from their perspective. So, so no arms control is dead and gone for the foreseeable future. All right, Bob Peters. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Had a good time. All right. And thank you to the listeners for joining us and stay tuned for Adam's Afterthoughts. Well, that was a great discussion with Bob Peters. If you, before, you know, I, I do want to tell you as a listener, if you've got some thoughts for helping me perfect my theory of nuclear weapons impact on global climate change, just send me an email. It's on the website. It'll come to me. I want to perfect the argument. I, I actually want to see what that real uh, impact is, is and how, how might we measure it and determine it. So, you know, if you got some thoughts, share them with me. If you were interested in the arms control discussion, which I thought was pretty interesting, I always like talking to Bob. He's thought through a lot of these issues and I found his, his take on arms control 
you know, a pretty solid foundation for understanding the strengths and weaknesses of arms control in general. And I hope you found it to be similarly helpful. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Brunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.